As I say, welcome to this session. We're talking about an, uh, a nation under God, question mark. I think that's the title, yeah. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit about this. I've written uh, a book that's come out again. It's a kind of rewrite called The Discipline of Intimacy, which we will be kind of uh, rolling out in September. But there's three chapters in there about what I'm going to talk about tonight. And pray for me because I'm trying to, as usual, compress uh, coals into a diamond. And, but you can buy that tonight if you've got cash. I haven't got a card reader, I'm afraid, if you want to take this further. Um, I was preaching in Ireland recently and reminded of the kind of anointing that is in Ireland, but I was telling them, and forgive me if you've heard this before, that it's often said that in, in heaven the uh, cooking will be French, the police will be English, the love will be Italian, and it's all organized by the Swiss in heaven. <laughs> Whereas in hell they say that the police are French, the food is English, the love is Swiss, and it's all organized by the Italians. And uh, it's a little silly joke amongst ourselves, the Europeans, forgive us. But I was asking the uh, Irish what their gift was in heaven. And um, one, one person was talking about lament. I don't know if there is lament in heaven, but I was just reminded of just how beautiful Irish I can't remember what they're called, keens or something. Is that right? Ah, really beautiful. And if you um, don't come from the UK, I wonder what you think is that redemptive gift in your, in your country, because that we'll be looking a little bit about those sort of divine purposes. And what is the redemptive gift that's on the United Kingdom? Do those things exist? Uh, I'm, I want to look a little bit about that, but I just put up a slide of a map in Hereford Cathedral where, where there is the largest existing medieval map of the world. It's a 52-inch map, Amundi. Uh, used to be an altarpiece and it was in the age of crusades and travels and so on. And it shows Jerusalem at the center of the world as was depicted in those days, quoting um, Ezekiel chapter five, verse five, God says, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And map mapers, let's have the next slide. I think it's very similar, but perhaps a bit bigger or closer up, always began with Jerusalem and God does too, it seems. It's very hard to talk about nations without talking about Israel. I, it isn't the subject of tonight's talk, but I don't want to fail to just um, say a few paragraphs about that. Uh, Disraeli said, the view of Jerusalem is the history of the world. It is more, it is the history of heaven and earth. And a chap called Miles Monroe said this, there is no other city that's been at the center of controversy for the past 3,000 years like the small piece of real estate we know as Jerusalem. Founded by King David as his capital, this city of the great king, as it's known throughout history, is still the center 
of national and international conflict in the 21st century. The number of prophecies and promises related to the city make it a jewel in the heart of many great religions of the world and the pivot of the historic fulfillment of Christian eschatology. The last days arguably will take place in Jerusalem. And Isaiah writes about that. If we could turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 62. He's just finished the beautiful messianic prophecy of Isaiah 61, which is taken up in the Beatitudes. Uh, Isaiah 61 is a sort of prototype of the Beatitudes with all the paradoxes and contrasts. And then he says the prophet who was sawn to death, um, it is said under Manasseh, legend has it, uh, Isaiah, um, he saw the Lord in chapter 6 and he was an intercessor and this is a, a, a kind of vision statement on his prayer discipline which we can learn from for this subject. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I won't remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You'll be called by a new name. No longer will they call you deserted. And so on, verse 6, I've posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of all the earth. So this is a prophecy really about Jerusalem and the nations. Many people read that about their own country or about the church. I always used to read church. For the church's sake, I will not be silent. Until I lived in Paris for 10 years in a Jewish quarter where so many people had been carted off to the concentration camps and there was such, it was a center for Jewish shopping and so on. And I began to wonder about this and I was led to to preach expositorily in French from Isaiah 40 to 66, a series which is one of the great privileges of my life. And then for the first time I went to Jerusalem and walked about the city and considered her ramparts and kind of went on a shift in my thinking and fell in love with the promised land, the holy land somehow. A bit like my colleague Simon Ponsonby did a few years later and he wrote about that in a book about the end times called And the Lamb Wins. When I talk about Israel and the destiny of Israel, I'm not talking about an unquestioning acceptance of the actions of the Jewish state. Please hear me. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the biblical hope, really. In fact, I believe there are two equal and opposite heresies when it, errors, two equal and opposite errors when it comes to thinking about Israel. One of them is to replace her with the church and think that anything that's said about her actually refers to the church. And since the re-establishment of the state of England, of Israel, there's been an equal opposite error, which is to love Israel, wear a prayer shawl, 
blow a shofar and uh, kind of go lurch in another direction uh, so that you, in the end, love Israel more than the church and begin to despise the church. And these two equal and opposite errors are to be avoided. And what I, I want to call us to, and it may be just the beginning tonight for you, but maybe John Chalton, who's speaking next week, will say a bit more about this next week. I don't know. He lived there for years. He knows much more about it than I do. Um, I just ask you to ask God for a prayer burden for Israel and her destiny. Simon Ponsonby says this, I believe God has a future for the Jews because of Scripture, Many prophecies and promises in the Bible remain only partially fulfilled and cannot easily be emptied of their obvious relevance to the people in the land today. I believe God has a future for the Jewish people because of the nature of God. He stands by his word. I suggest that the return to the land after two millennia and the establishment of the nation state is more of a miracle and proof of God given the Holocaust. If God didn't exist, there would never have been a 1948 restoration to the land, nor a 60-year prosperity in the land, despite new, numerous efforts to remove them from it. Third, I believe God has a future for the Jewish people because they still exist as a distinct people group with Abraham's DNA. It is a miracle in history that an identifiable people group who have wandered among the nations for 2,500 years can still trace themselves back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Fourth, I believe God has a future for the Jews because of modern history. Whatever the rights and wrongs of Israel in the land, she nevertheless seems to have taken center stage on world politics as scripture foretells. And lastly, he concludes, I believe God has a future for the Jewish people because of the interest Satan has shown in them throughout history, seeking to wipe their memory off the face of the earth from Pharaoh to Hitler and many others today. Whatever Satan rages against has a special purpose in God's plan. So this passage from Isaiah 62 is not talking about the church. Isaiah doesn't know anything about the church. He's got no concept of church. He's talking about Israel and the land. It reminds us a bit about um, Psalm 122, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. Psalm 137, if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. The church has often forgotten Jerusalem days without number. And maybe you're here tonight and you have never thought about this. In which case I strongly encourage you to read the beautiful balanced position of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, chapter 10 and chapter 11. Where you get the kind of heart of Paul's longing really. And his prayer, he talks about the partial hardening of Israel in, uh, in Romans eleven twenty five. He talks about arousing Israel to jealousy, um, to envy as the church becomes pure. <laughs> One of the best ways to bring about the ultimate destiny of Israel is for the church to be put on fine linen and become pure and become who she's supposed to be. Uh, the church has often been anti-Semitic. Is this a current contemporary subject? Well, arguably, maybe the Labour Party will not win the next election. I'm not prophesying that. I'm not telling you what I vote for or anything. But, you know, 
It's amazing that this is that, that is this happening in front of our eyes in the middle of these negotiations. So he prays, he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved, Romans 10 verse one. He says he has great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart for the sake of his brethren and so on. And in Romans 9, at the end of Romans 9, he talks of the Gentiles being saved, but also the remnant. And he says, if they don't persist in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you won't be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved, which we could exposit and... Um, describe what that means through Christ. So he prophesies the comfort of God. He prophesies that the land will be married. He talks about the ministry of the watchman, which I'm encouraging you to become. He talks about preparing the way. He talks about the noise of persistent prayer. For Zion's sake, I will not be quiet. He talks about uh, different strategies really which is not my subject for tonight but you could read about and we maybe will talk about that on another occasion. So you cannot think about the destiny of nations without thinking about the destiny of Israel biblically. But now I want to move on to talk about the destiny of nations because 200 years ago William Blake wrote a famous hymn which says this, which is called Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And it, what's it about? It's about England. And we can sing it together. And did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy Lamb of God in England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here? Um, England's among those dark satanic mills. Well done, you know. I, I nearly asked Lauren to sing that for us, but um, I spared her. I sometimes wanted to prophesy that, but I've always felt it's a bit too much. But he goes on, I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hands till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. I don't know if it's sung a lot. It's sung at football matches, isn't it? That is the anthem of the English football team, if you don't know. And the last night of the proms, of course, with a lot of, you know, all that. So it's, it's deeply English. And the idea of Jesus walking on England's mountains is part of medieval legends. The stories say that after Jesus' crucifixion, Joseph took the Holy Grail to Glastonbury, where, where he established the first English church. Diomed McCulloch, who's professor of history at Oxford, describes the legend as totally implausible, but 
He suggests Blake was a mystic and he is saying in his lovely poetry that God dwells everywhere, including England. Anyway, this was 200 years ago and it's kind of in the blood of England to pray that the dark satanic mills, this was a kind of anti-industrial revolution hymn, are replaced by the peace of God, the presence of God in our land. And in recent years, we've seen a growing emphasis on prayer for nations with burdened hearts crying out like the psalmist in Psalm 2 verse 8. What does that say? Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Beloved St. Aldates, future ordinance, pastors who are already ordained, group leaders and so on, I want to exhort you to ask of him that he would give us the nations. I had a great friend in France who used to lead a, lead a ministry called um, Coef Sank, Communion des œuvres et des églises dans la francophonie. There you go. I'm saying that because of some French people here tonight. He wrote a book called Francement, which is a play on words. Anyway, he said this, borrowing John Knox's prophetic prayer, give me Scotland or I die. Can we say, give me France or I die? That is to say, I don't have a reason for living that is more important to me than seeing the kingdom of God revealed over the whole of my nation. Like Simeon, who waited for the consolation of Israel, who knew the salvation of the Lord, I want to see a powerful revival of faith in Christ and love for God fill my nation. Therefore, I say, give me France or I don't have a reason to live that satisfies me. I don't merely want to see things from afar. I am actually convinced that as a person of prayer grows in intimacy with God and in worship, we always say in St. Aldate's, St. Aldate's is a place of worship. You know, someone told me on Sunday night that they came in and they, for the first time in church for months and years, and not used to church, never been in a, a church in England and spent half of the service in tears, crying. Why? Because, I said, I feel, they felt they were coming home. They're coming home. There's a homesickness in the heart. And people find it here on this extraordinary gift of worship in the place as people lift their hands and lift their eyes and epiphanies happen, as has been going on for a thousand years. But we always say that the currency of worship without without the other side, which is intercession and prayer and a burdened, prayerful heart, is like a 50-pound note which is only printed on one side. It's worthless, really. can be. So presence leads to prayer. And so that's why we're doing this series in a way, partly because of that, but partly because we are aware our nation is in a lot of trouble. It's paralysed and needs shifting. And some people react surprisingly strongly to the idea of praying for Britain. You know, when I taught on this in France, someone said to me, Ne nous parlons pas de prier pour la France, ça fait Front National. 
don't talk to me about praying for France, it's like the National Front. And that's particularly felt in France. But I'm this kind of fear of jingoism or a fear of nationalism, and I completely understand that. Uh, so that may be a reason why you're reticent, or there's kind of post-colonial guilt often. So we do not want to get too excited about our country because you know we've done wrong in the past. And uh, another reason why there's perhaps not so much prayer going on is people aren't writing about it. Prophets, I believe, are talking about it. But theologues are not really writing about it. I long for people to do that. I look forward to N.T. Wright's book on the subject, if he writes one. Um, but the Bible talks about this. Jesus gives his... When, when Jesus gives his go and make disciples great commission, he takes trouble to mention the nations. Matthew 28, verse 9, go and make disciples of all nations. And when he's talking about final judgment in Matthew 25, verse 31, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the holy angels with him, he'll sit on the throne of his glory, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. What does that mean? John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, good book, uh, assumes, as I always had done, and many do, that this verse is just referring to people. He'll separate people. But is that what the text actually says? Even though salvation is personal, might it be in the colorful creativity of God, a purpose for each nation, a plan for each people group, a call on each country. May there be choices that a nation can make that will incline the hearts of the people to see and follow Christ. And might there be choices that could be taken by contrast that will harden the hearts of the whole nation. Arguably, we're seeing something of that in the UK at the moment as ancient boundary stones are being moved. This is why the, the prayer people need their antennae up. And I was saying on Sunday night, I was quoting um, King George VI, who um, called the nation to prayer in, um, in the Second World War. Excuse me, I'm just trying to find a place. Uh, Where, where, so George VI um, was the man who got his speech back, and it's talked about in the King's speech. And what did he use his voice for? I was quoting on Sunday night what he said on the 7th of June 1944, which is this listen to this, imagine the head of government saying this today. 
He said this, that we may be worthily matched with the new summons to destiny, I desire solemnly to call my people to prayer and dedication. I hope that throughout the present crisis in the liberation of Europe, there may be offered up earnest, continuous, widespread prayer. If from every place of worship, home, factory, men, women of all ages and many races our intercessions rise, then please God, the petitions of an ancient psalm may be fulfilled. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will give his people blessing and peace. So I believe that the destiny of nations is hanging in the balance. And it's up to the church to pray that into being. And at the you know, as, as the book of Joel talks about calling the nations before God in the valley of decision. And I believe that uh, there's a call on us to seek his face at this time, especially. I believe that in Europe, ancient wells, springs of the gospel and revival are gradually being blocked up <laughs> and covered over and forgotten. And um, it's, in a way, up to us to unblock the wells that our fathers have dug, as in the book of Genesis. And part of the way we do that is through prayer. And... We first come across the nation then, in the, the term nation in the Bible in Genesis 10 after the flood. We read this. These are the clans of Noah's sons. Look up Genesis 10. You'll see this. According to the lines of verse 32, within their nations, from these nations spread out, from these the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. And after the flood, Noah comes out of the ark, makes a sacrifice, and God declares a change of approach. His sons are named, and from these sons, God now produces nations. So the Bible is really clear. God is interested in nations. To Abraham, he says this, this is my covenant, this is Genesis 17, verse four, my covenant with you, you will be called the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham, you will be called Abraham. I've made you a father of many nations. So God loves nations. He invented them. They're his idea. After that, there's a time when God deals exclusively with Israel. She's the apple of his eye. She represents the purposes of God. He treats her as an example of what God wants in all nations. But there are glimpses and key moments when God speaks to different nations individually. One of the most beautiful prophecies is in Isaiah 19, 23 to 26. Famous prophecy. Write it down if you're taking notes. Isaiah 19, 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. And in that day, Israel will be the third along with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. That's almost unthinkable today. Egypt, which wants the destruction of Israel. Syria and Israel, but there it is in the Bible. 
And you can think in the past that God dealt almost exclusively with Israel, but after the day of Pentecost, the non-Jewish people groups didn't interest the apostles. They had to be pushed to think about them. And Paul was named in Acts 9, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the nations or the Gentiles and their kings. And years later, Paul preaches in Athens, and I quoted Acts 17 earlier, where he says he made the nations out of one man. So he's saying the nations are God's work. From Noah, according to the Bible, Deuteronomy says the same thing. I won't go through all the scriptures. And from looking at nations in general, we could go further and say, through the Old Testament, God dealt with the nation of Israel as an example of how he would deal with the nations. Israel is a banner to the people. For 2,000 years, she was banned from her land. But since the Second World War, she's been created again. And you might say, well, now is a time for, for nations. Um, this isn't a completely new idea. In the days of the church fathers, missionaries went to nations and brought, you know, Germany was brought to Christ through Boniface, for example. All others came to the UK to make the Angles angels, uh, and so on. And in times of revival, Preachers have often been really burdened for their land in a way that's gone way beyond the local church and their area, and they've been times of great unity between churches. And the destiny of whole nations has been affected, as happened in, in England in the 18th century. But it's also true to say that revivals became denominations. It's very hard to think of it otherwise, you know, the 18th century revival became Methodism. If you go to Christchurch Cathedral and look at the grave or the plaques in the floor, you'll see John and Charles Wesley, students of this college, founders of the Methodist revival. It wasn't a Methodist revival, it was a revival revival. But Similarly, Azusa Street, the breakout of the Pentecostal gifts of tongues and prophecy and amazing visitation from God became what? Pentecostalism, really. So revivals became denominations. I doubt if God meant it to be like that. He was looking for the re renewal and the destiny of the nation. And um, so... That's a bit of a rant about all that subject. Can you just ask your group, your, your table now, if this is the case, how do you think you can best pray for nations? How to pray for nations? I would, I would say there is something called remitting the sins of a nation and praying for forgiveness that we are called to, I believe. You find it in uh, clearly Nehemiah, confessing the sins of his fathers as if they were his own. Um, you find it in Joel, where Joel sees a natural disaster, a plague of locusts, as an alert, an alarm call to pray. And I see the Brexit paralysis as an alarm call to pray. I do, I just think we are... We need to call on God. Um, 
you know, Joel says, hear this, you elders, listen. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of our fathers? Tell it to your children. Let your children tell it. What the locust swarm has left, the great locust, etc. Um, and later on, he calls uh, the people to repentance. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious. Who knows, he may turn and have pity. Blow a trumpet in Zion. I often say, who is blowing a trumpet for prayer in our land at the moment? I want to blow one in our church anyway, and in our city. That's why at Love Oxford, two or 3,000 people in Broad Street, we spend time repenting, asking for forgiveness, quietly just asking God to have mercy and why it turns into a kind of citywide prayer meeting there. But remitting the sins of a nation and, and asking for forgiveness. It's important, it's important to say, of course, that in the new covenant, the means for expiation is to plead the efficacy of the sacrifice of Christ Jesus once for all, for all our sins. This is a mysterious subject. Um, many people think the sins of the fathers are visited on the children in nations today and the praying church needs to listen to God about these things and stand in the gap you know get up into the presence of God and Joel does that and it's so interesting to me that he says after this you know after what does he say let the priests you are a nation of priests. There is a priesthood of all believers, but let the ordained people as well do what? Weep between the porch and the altar. Let the priests weep between, in the welcome area. Why should they say among the nations, where is their God? And so that is Joel's kind of call to repentance and We've already heard about um, 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. That's a big if, if my people. And, and Joel gets, as it were, into the presence of God and then he, he prophesies something which is this. He says, and afterwards, afterwards, what? Afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. People will dream dreams. People will have visions. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, which is taken up by Peter on the day of Pentecost, which, of course, is a time that is happening after 40 days of prayer in the upper room. So the afterwards is really important. And then secondly, that's the first thing, remitting the sins of the nation, praying for forgiveness, standing in the gap. The second thing is praying for, I would say, the redemptive purpose of a nation. Not so much praying against things that are wrong in it, but praying for the beautiful purpose for which God brought the nation to 
into being would be established. That is how to pray for your children, actually. You know, who are they? What are they called to be? And um, I believe we need to have some understanding of that, and that is often where prophecy comes in. And um, on national characteristics, as regards France, for example, one national characteristic is that of passion. Paris is the city of perfume. And if you step into a worship service in France, in French, c'est vraiment incroyablement touchant. It touches your heart. That's where I learned to worship, actually, in French, in Paris. That, I believe, is a destiny on that nation. But, like so many things, it has been twisted. And Paris is, a, is like a painted prostitute lady sometimes. I'm sorry to say that. And I sometimes felt walking through Paris was like walking through one vast pictorial pornographic dictionary. If you take Los Angeles, Los Angeles, often names speak about destiny. Los Angeles is the city of angels. What are angels? Angels are messengers of God. And all the way up the west coast of America, you come across these mission stations, really beautiful places where the Franciscans, or I can't remember who, brought the gospel there. And that is the destiny of that part of America, maybe. But today it has become the seat of the messengers of uh, the film industry, the uh, internet, uh, the, the, the surveillance capitalists, if you like. And uh, again, often pornographic and unseemly material. So. Praying for the destiny of places may seem a bit obscure, but I believe it's important. You know, we talked of the French, the British, I'll talk about them a little bit, the Californians, what about the Swiss with their thoroughness and depth, the Ugandans with their perseverance through suffering, intelligence, the fighting gift of prayer that seems to be input, particularly in Africa, for which I'm so grateful and which I covet. What about the Chinese with their tears and courage, the Brazilian troubadours, the Arab countries with their gentle giant streak and gift of community and hospitality? What of the Koreans with their dances and mountaintop dreams? And let's pray these things into being. And if you are from one of these countries in Oxford, please bring that gift to us. What about the UK praying for her destiny? Here's a little prophecy from a woman called Jean Darnell in the 1970s. I saw the British Isles glistening like a clump of jade in the grey seas surrounding them. It was a bird's eye view. Looking down, I saw Scotland, England, Wales, and to the northwest Ireland. The treetops upon the hills and the clustered clouds hid the people. Suddenly, small flickering lights appeared. They were scattered all over the eyes. I came closer. The light was firelight. There were fires burning from the top of Scotland to Land's End, the tip of Cornwall. Lightning streaked downwards from the sky. I saw it touch with swiftness exploding. 
Like lava, they burned their fiery path downward from the top of Scotland to Land's End. The waters didn't stop them, but the fire spread across the seas to Ireland and Europe. The streams of fiery light into Europe seemed to be an army of all kinds of people moving into the continent with a compassionate ministry. This ministry was not mass meetings led by powerful personalities preaching to spectators, but participating, caring communities involved with each other at grassroots level, sharing the love of God everywhere. I saw the empty cradles of Europe, her churches, light up with a new generation of Christian leaders. This is Jean Darnell, who is, I think, um, Australian-American, can't remember. Amazing woman, brought good things to the UK. You can't read that out in France because it's imperialistic. You, 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 you might just get away with it here. Personally, I find it intriguing, beautiful, faith-building, and partly because of things like that, this church has, is in the process of planting churches in Europe, in Austria, and in Caen, in France, in Paris, and giving money and people to do that. Um, and in November, we have a thing called the Europe Collaboration with a 20 or 30 church planters here. I and Vaughan Roberts will be, you know, trying to help that. But so prophecy just needs, leads to prayer. Here's another prophecy given by a chap called John Melindy for Britain. Anyone heard of him? He, 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 he's preached here, but I saw the map of the continent of Europe and as I looked, there came out of this map a big pillar of smoke. It was a tall, thick, dark pillar of heavy black fumes as from a factory chimney. The fumes rose up very slowly. From the pillar there came a thin mist and it began spreading imperceptibly, but within a short time it formed a dark film over the entire continent of Europe. The mist grew thicker and blacker. And then suddenly I saw a small light spring out from within the Isles of the UK. It grew rapidly with finger-like rays of light spreading in all directions cutting across the European mainland. For some time they disappeared and thick black cloud rising and then they broke through and reappeared. And then the picture disappeared and in its place came a scripture. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises on you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness the people but the Lord rises on you and his glory appears over you. Nations come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes round about and see they all gather themselves together and then you will see and flow together and your heart will fear and be enlarged. Isaiah 64 to 5. Then he says this, listen to this. It's a bit long, but bear with me and maybe be prayerful and see whether you think this is Accurate. This was given about 25 years ago. A thick darkness is rising over the continent of Europe. It's going to grow in intensity and will soon cover the whole continent and on to the rest of the world. It's a force of evil. 
Wherever it'll gain full control over any land, it will turn the hearts of the people away from God. They'll hate anything to do with God, with righteousness or goodness. Sanity will be cast overboard and people will call good evil and evil good. They'll desire and give vent to the basest animal passions and look for wilder and wilder ways of doing this. The light is my power of renewal to be released on the land. It will come if my people give themselves wholeheartedly to seeking my face. It's coming will be like a great storm. It will be a mighty power against the darkness and protect people. Wherever the light will break out, the darkness will be neutralized. But this calls for the cooperation of my people in seeking for it to happen. The Lord is calling Britain into a special place of responsibility. A great light will spring over out of the UK. If you will answer this call, O Britain, and give yourselves to institute prayer in your land and seek the Lord with all your heart, with groaning and travailing prayer, even as a woman in labor pains, yes, if you'll repent of sin, if you'll heal the wounded hearts within you and cause unity to abound, oh, if you will return to your redemptive purpose and again be faithful to the work of being a witness of the gospel in the nations, then God will release on you a mighty outpouring of his spirit. You'll again be clothed with the glory of the Lord. You'll be a nation that bears the name of the Lord like a banner in the sky. I put that in the book, in, in the first version of this book, The Discipline of Intimacy. It didn't make it into the second one. Why not? Because I, you know, I just think it needs to be weighed. Who thinks that's pretty true? Stick a hand up. Pretty, well, is it, is it accurate? Do you like it? Who likes that? Who thinks that's a bit weird? You can do, you know. I think prophecy needs to be weighed, prayed through, and I'm sorry I don't have more recent things, but I'm calling us to be prayerful and be prophetic. And I could talk to you about France, prophetic destiny, but our time has gone.